Hi folks, before we start the podcast, a little bit of housekeeping. It is the beginning of the month and it's a brilliant time to join the Tortoise Shack. Your 550 a month, you can come on board, see the about over a thousand in the back catalogue in exclusive podcasts and other content without the plea, the plea free version of many of the podcasts, plus the ones you're missing out on currently, like a terrific conversation we had on Sunday with Shamim Malik Mian of the Dublin Enquirer and Harry McEvan-Sonia, uh, and a conversation we had yesterday with uh, economist Konstantin Gordiev in Denver. It was fascinating as always. All of those plus tons and tons and tons of additional content are available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise You get it uh, as soon as I can turn it around. All the pods in one place, one consolidated feed and it helps keep us going. And I mean that sincerely. It's the only way we do it. There's no ads, no sponsors. We rely on you guys. Uh, you're currently probably a couple of weeks behind if you're listening to this because You've missed out on my conversation with Holly Cairns and various other ones. But we do try to get all our podcasts out to the public as as often and as quickly as we can. But patrons get it first. That's the that's the routine. Plus, they don't have to listen to me plead with you for the money. Uh, and unfortunately, plead, I must. If you can, one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Hit pause. It's, the link is in the podcast. It's in your player there. It would really help us. It, there's, there's a level for everyone. It's a couple of quid, but it means the world. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. And I'm your host, Rory Hearn. And I'm delighted today we're having a podcast that is going to discuss the issue of child poverty and um, broader issues around children and inequality um, and their engagement. And I have a really, really excellent panel today um, with Tanya Ward, who's CEO of the Children's Rights Alliance. And listeners would be very familiar with Tanya. She's a regular guest in Reboot Republic. Um, and the Children's Rights Alliance have produced a new report called the Child Poverty Monitor 2022. Um, and that report is the first in a series of reports that We'll be looking at child poverty in Ireland and monitoring, as the Children's Rights Alliance itself describes, the root causes um, of poverty amongst children, but also importantly, showing solutions to addressing issues that cross educational disadvantage, social exclusion, healthcare, homelessness, food poverty, and income adequacy. And some of the um, our guests today are, have been involved in implementing some of those solutions and, and really working on the ground around these. Um, and it's uh, Zoe Oppenheim, who is a local mother of four, who is involved in uh, campaigning around the Bridgefoot Street Playground in Dublin 8, um, and which was included in the Child Poverty Monitor as a best practice solution to child poverty. I are also joined by Marion Quinn, who is Chief Executive Officer of the Childhood Development Initiative, and she, her career has been focused on children, young people and families. And she's worked in the HSC in the Department of Justice. And she's going to talk about the implementation um, of the uh, looking at poverty amongst uh, families and children in Tala and some really interesting findings from that. Tanya, I was re- to go to you first. I was reading through the report and I was really struck. Uh, it's a really comprehensive report. Uh, there's so much in it and it is so important um, that, as we've discussed before, to put the focus on child poverty. Um, I was looking at some of the figures there in terms of of children and children in poverty, and it really is stark. And as you make the point in the report, you know, we actually don't have the up-to-date figures in terms of the impact of the cost of living crisis on on child poverty, which has no doubt um, increased it again. 
but even these are pre kind of the last year. Um, if we look at figures for 2021 and um, looking at deprivation that, you know, deprivation amongst children was 17 percent, which is close to one in five of children, all children experiencing deprivation, which is some level of uh, not having access to, for example, you know, heat in the house or food, some elements of food. Um, and then amongst one parent families, really shocking, 45 percent of children in one parent families experiencing deprivation. Um, another figure that I was really struck by was the survey published in February 22 that said one quarter of parents are always or sometimes worried about being unable to provide sufficient food for their children and um, rising to a third amongst those in, un- in employment um, unemployment. And that a fifth of adults, parents, had said they had skipped meals or reduced portions to ensure children have enough to eat. What is the situation in terms of child poverty? These figures are very stark, Tanya. And they don't even tell the full story because even when these figures are put together, you know, they're they're based on the household survey that the Central Statistics Office does from uh, uh, from time to time. Yeah. And they have a standard set of questions. The kind of people that aren't captured are people in traveler sites, people in direct provision, refugees, yeah. people in homeless accommodation. But they also pick up people's incomes. And there are a lot of people with good incomes at this moment in time. Uh, so they won't be picked up in the stats. But what's happening is their household income has been eaten and eroded through the cost of housing and childcare. And they might yeah. be having a similar experience, but they're not being picked up in the data. So you have to say it's a crisis. It's a crisis yeah. affecting, unfortunately, a huge proportion of the population. Parents really struggling to keep their heads above water, making very difficult decisions on a daily basis. It can be very stressful for parents that are living through this. And it's difficult for children living through it. So you you find that children at a very young age are able to pick up when their parents are very stressed about money. Uh, They're very careful to ask their parents for anything that they might need. Um, Bernardo's will tell you their stories of children taking food home from their early years site and uh, our centre and bringing it home to other young children in the household. I have another member organisation that told me about three-year-olds stealing food so they could get through the weekend and the thing I suppose that gets to me about these experiences look no doubt it impacts on how you grow how you develop Mm. how you do an education but there is a a really stark statistic that came out last year from a piece of research that Catherine Sapone had commissioned when she was minister for children and it was going a bit deeper into the growing up in Ireland data yeah uh, which is a big longitudinal study and what they were able to work out is it's, it's one of the things that often, I suppose, doesn't get really talked about as much as it should do, perhaps in, when we talk about child poverty. But when you talk to people going through it, it comes, it comes through is uh, the way children think about themselves. So they were able to look at a, a subgroup of, of children at, their, at the age of nine. And what they found is for children leaving, living in deprivation, this really serious form of poverty, the grinding form of poverty every day, uh, three in 10 of them had a very poor self-concept and what that means is these are children who don't really see any future for themselves they don't see any possibilities there's an absence of hope and the longer you live through this the more likely you are to feel like that but the other thing shining through is that if you live through this as an infant as a toddler as a young child you're more likely to have a very poor self-concept about yourself and that what's possible 
And I think as a children's rights campaigner, that's the thing that really gets to me, that mm. already there are very young children already that have no hope for their future. And so what I want to do is want to change that because I know yeah. it's not inevitable that in other countries where they've gotten their services right, where people have enough income to live on, you don't have the kind of numbers we have of children that think this way. Yeah, it is so important to talk about that, I think, in terms of because a lot of the child poverty figures, you know, and, you know, people have different understandings of what that is. But you might think of, you know, children going hungry, as you've described there. But I think those broader, um, you know, you call them developmental, psychological, mental health. And in many ways, you know, your whole, as you described there, your whole sense of self. And I do remember doing research um, for task in relation to that and looking at inequality and that very growing up in Ireland study and being struck by that, that children's sense of self-esteem, there was, there was different when it was going into some of the, the aspects, seeing that in terms of that social class differentiation that, you know, people in lower socioeconomic groups, ch- children in lower socioeconomic groups had lower sense of self-esteem. And, and, and that, of course, it, it impacts you on so many ways. It impacts on your brain development. It impacts on what you decide to do, what you think you can do, um, and all sorts of areas and mental health, of course, as well. And I think that is really important that we understand and we do talk a lot more about that kind of that destruction of the potential of a child that this is what this yeah. is doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know it's one of the big things coming through in the education space. You know, why why do children not progress in education? And on one side, obviously, there's your essential needs, making sure you have enough food to eat because you can't concentrate if you if you arrive to school hungry, making sure you know you arrive to school clean, you have the right clothes. All of these things are important to how you how you how you progress. And you have a home to start with. Uh, this is it. And you have somewhere yeah. to do your homework. But one of the things coming through from the research as well is um, and it's one of the big things is 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 really about those barriers that sometimes what's happening is in a family, uh, you know, it might be communicated to a child. I know it's like it would happen with my own dad, you know, huge ability, got a scholarship. But at home, they decided, no, no, you're not going to the secondary school. Uh, we go to the tech. Um, and what can happen is you know, the family might think, no, that's not for us. But the other thing that can happen as well is that, you know, the people within the school you're going to might think, no, that's not for you. You're not yeah. going to be going to university. And the research is showing that, that this cumulatively um, makes children think that this isn't for me uh, and they don't reach their full potential as a result. And, you know, it's the lifelong consequences of these interve- or lack of interventions um, a- a- along a child's life cycle. Like we know what's going to happen. You're going to have a shorter life. You're going to be more likely to have ill health. You're going to find it harder to complete in the jobs market. I mean, we live in an era where you can't really get a good job now without an education. It was different 40 years ago. And the state, the, the stats show you that it was different. But now you can't get into those jobs. You can't train into the job and get the qualification. Um, and it means you're going to have poor housing choices as a result. And it creates a cycle of disadvantage. Yeah. And I just think it's something that we we, we shouldn't accept. Absolutely. It's not inevitable. Uh, and we should be making the right decisions. I mean, if there was one thing I would love for us, I suppose, as a sector as well to communicate is have high aspirations for mm. all the children and young people and families that we're working with, because that's what they're telling us. There's people around them. They actually don't have high aspirations for them or for themselves. Uh, and I think it's possibly one of the big barriers that's impacting um, on investment in this area. Um, I mean, 
I, I'm in my job nine years now as well. And one of the things I am thinking, increasingly, I'm more convinced than ever, actually, about the right to vote for 16 and 17 year olds. And you might ask, how does that connect to child poverty? Yeah. Well, every time I see the news and I see 10 euros for the pensioners and I think, right, OK, I think that's great because I think we should be making sure pensioners are safeguarded from poverty. But I do know the data is telling us with the two a person household that they're not as exposed to poverty as children are and then I asked myself well why does this keep happening and I think it's going down to making sure children have the right to vote um, if children had the right to vote 16 and 17 year olds I think you'd see a different focus from politicians um, I think it'd have enormous effect actually on environmental decisions because you know children young people they have the appetite to deal with these issues. I, I think a lot of my generation are finding it very hard to grapple with it. The doom that's ahead of us, you switch off, you know, you switch yeah. off, yeah. you're dealing with climate grief. Young people don't have that. You know, they're more, they're more open and exercised around it. And I'm increasingly convinced that the right to vote is one of the things we need to need to campaign for alongside reforms on child poverty to get that real change that we need to see happen. Yeah. And I think as well, it's also that as a society that you know, we don't accept or tolerate this and that, you know, it's like in homelessness where we've normalized, you know, child homelessness. We just accept it that it's, you know, I just like the shocking increase in the numbers of children who are not just in emergency accommodation, but are losing their homes with their families over the last 10 months. Like it's, you know, been horrific over the last, you know, what are we now, eight years since the crisis of family and child homelessness emerged. But over the last year, I've just been struck by just the absence of concern of expression that you know you know thousands of children are being traumatized by the loss of their home and where is the you know the the outrage that this is not acceptable we don't and, and as you said it's not inevitable and you know we are in one of the wealthiest countries in the world how do we tolerate child poverty rates that are you know doubles other countries like sweden and denmark we shouldn't we absolutely shouldn't um, and listen, Tanya, I'm going to come back um, after we, we talk to Marion and Zoe to some of the solutions. And I know you've put in a submission as well to the budget. So I'll ask you maybe to bring us through some of those yeah. uh, proposals yeah. around that. I'm going to go yeah. to Marion Quinn now. Um, Marion, maybe you could set out just in terms of your experience, what you found from your research and work on the ground in terms of TALA um, around child poverty and, and families there. Yeah, no, I'd be really happy to do that. Thanks, Rory. Um, so I suppose that the research that we have recently undertaken um, focusing on child poverty is kind of part of a it's it's part of a series of of community surveys that we do. So yeah. the, the Childhood Development Initiative was set up in 2007 to kind of look at new ways of working to improve outcomes for children and families. So one of the things that we do is every four or five years, we do a really major piece of research with the community because, you know, things aren't static, things do change. And um, and so the research, the most recent kind of version of that, um, as it happens, was undertaken largely during COVID. Mm. Um, and, uh, and But we particularly wanted to focus on the experience of, of poverty. And, and I mean, I think it's really important to say that actually one of the recurring themes in every piece every time we've done that kind of research is that people really like living in Tala. yeah the vast majority of people have a real sense of belonging they feel part of a community um you know they they feel very connected to the areas most people don't want to move anywhere else they're very yeah. happy there 
but but you know inevitably there are difficulties and and as we all know now covid exacerbated and or put a spotlight on stuff that was kind of fairly hidden like the food poverty and yeah. technology poverty that that you know that we all are very aware of i mean we we called the report over the fence because one of the new themes in that research is that people talked about things happening around them but without them yeah and it was like people kind of um having a sense of really being left behind while new new developments are happening new privately owned developments are happening so there are parts of 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 west taller that you know front on to city west which is now a sprawling, you know, huge privately owned area. Um, and people in other parts of Jobstown and McCulliam and, you know, places that have, have had a lot of difficulties feeling that, you know, they're looking over the fence at these developments going up, um, nice houses, you know, nice shops, facilities. And yet here we are in a community that, you know, it ha- really ha- is being left behind. Yeah. So, so that was kind of, you know, where the, the, the name of the report came from. Um, I mean, Tanya's talked a bit about that whole importance of having aspirations from, for our children. Yeah. It's really interesting over the period of time that we've been doing these surveys in Tala. Actually, that's one of the things parents have increasing aspiration for their children. They're very clear. My children are going to do okay. My children are going to get a good education. My children are going to get a good job. And we think, we're not sure, I mean, who knows, but we think there's probably a few reasons for that. Yeah. The IT being in Tala, so having a technical, you know, well, now the Technical University of yeah. Tala, having that big facility, very good ac- access, lots of outreach stuff happening. And then places like on Kassan running third level qualification programs. So education feels much more accessible, I think, for people. And I, and that's that's a very important part yeah, of what's that's very positive to hear that in terms of that. It is. It's great because, you know, I mean, as Tanya said, if, if we don't have hope for our children that, you know, they do know that children, yeah. do, you know, pick up on it. I mean, one of the other things I was sort of listening to Tanya talking about was um, you know, that experience of poverty, people, you know, adults, you know, going without in order to get, make sure that their children are, are getting food, but also the hiding of it, the shame of it. Yeah. And, and parents not wanting their children to know either that they haven't got enough money or that they're having to rely on food banks, but also anxiety around becoming homeless or becoming homeless again. And that is a massive um, burden for parents because, you know, not only are they having to manage the anxiety, but then they're also trying to hide it from their children. But actually also the children know. Yeah. So the children know that, you know, mom's trying to hide it. The children know that there isn't enough fun at the food or money or that, you know, we're really worried that we're not going to be able to stay in the house. And then, but they also know it's a secret. And, yeah, and it's so very difficult a, to manage that as a family. It's really hard. It's really hard. I mean, we've come across it in other work we've done where where there's a, a parent in prison and, and people don't know, do we tell the child, you know, that dad's in prison or your brother's in prison? And people often feel it's better to hide all of that. But children just know. I mean, they pick yeah, up on stuff. Of course and, they know. Um, they know. They, even if they don't understand, they know from how your mood is, from what, 
you know how you are of course they do there yeah and so then you then you have a double burden of not only knowing something that's really hard to understand and accept but also being part of the secrecy around yeah. it and that's really very difficult for people yeah and of course, shame is a. It's interesting. I've you know read, and you're probably very f- familiar with the the work by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett around the, the spirit level and inequality and the impact. And he always talked. They always talked about um, that kind of shame as a as a destructive emotion and an emotion in terms of particularly around inequalities and people understanding. And you know, children know you know that living in poverty and and those feelings of shame and shame about the family. They, you know, they they know that and they internalize and it impacts on them as well. And and just at that, in terms of um, you know, the work that you're doing around um, you know, I suppose monitoring kind of poverty and what sort of kind of new things additionally were you finding that I suppose maybe aren't being picked up wider, do you think? Well, obviously the food poverty um has, you know, just um gone through the roof uh and and COVID exposed that. So we have had, we've had things in place that, you know, cover up the extent to which families rely on the state to help them to feed their children. So the fact that DESH schools, you know, schools in disadvantaged areas, you know, are able to provide breakfast for their, for the children. And then because the schools closed, all of a sudden, you know, families are wondering how, you know, how are we, going to feed the children how are the children going to have enough to eat so um you know there were huge efforts throughout covid to make sure food parcels were going to families i mean that that just seems quite incredible that we think it's okay that people do not have enough income to buy food and also there's research recently that that the kind of food banks aren't nutritionally adequate especially for children, because they're not providing fresh fruit and vegetables. They're providing, you know, dried pasta and stuff, which is fine. But actually, for a child to grow up healthy, they need the full range and food banks aren't able to provide that. So, you know, what what are we walking ourselves into with this acceptance that food banks are, you know, part of, of what a lot of people have to rely on to get through the week? Um, and of course, sorry, go on there. Yeah. No, just, you know, a, 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 the, a growing kind of a change in the profile of people who are ha- having to rely on food banks as well. So, you know, people who are working but, but don't have enough income uh, who are therefore having to supplement their income through, through food banks um, and, and uh, other sort of charitable ways of accessing food. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, it's just it's astonishing, actually, that that there is this acceptance and that, that this is this is what people have to do. It's a bit yeah, like and, and, saying, and, Rory, about the acceptance of homelessness. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to public health nurses who can tell a two or three year old who has lived for a period of time in a in homelessness yeah. because they don't have the muscle tone in their leg that a two or three year old should have because there is nowhere for them to run. There is nowhere for them to walk because they're in buggies so much of the time because there is no space. I mean, that's just shocking. That truly is, isn't it? It's, it really is. And yeah, it's just, it's utterly shocking and it's disgraceful. You know, that that's, 
that that's what we accept, as you say, our, our systems and failings in our systems do to children. Um, and I always talk about that, you know, describing it's a form of structural violence. It's a form of systemic, you know, imposed violence on children that is utterly, utterly unacceptable. That, that, that is what we do. And, and struck there about the food as well in terms of nutrition, because nutrition is essential for children in terms of their development, their physical development, their brain development. Um, and, you, you know, to, to see that level, that rise in food poverty is really shocking, as you're saying, and across the groups. And we're not seeing it. Maybe, Tanya, you could come in on this. The, the national figures kind of don't really capture that, do they, in terms of food poverty? Yeah. Yeah, they don't. We don't have a monitor of food poverty. So there are questions on food in the uh, CSO survey that measures consistent poverty. Um, And so one of the questions, for example, can you get uh, uh, either a meat or chicken on the table Mm. in the week? So it's your best indication of the level of food poverty that people might be experiencing. So, you know, 62,000 children are inconsistent poverty on in, in, in the last measure. Um, and so we would say that's telling us these are these are a group of children that are probably going to bed hungry once or twice twice a week. Uh, but there's different experiences of it. Uh, you know, the main reason why people are falling onto the food banks is because what they have a tendency to do, and the studies show this, they 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 pay the rent or they pay the electricity bill. And then what they have to do is they cut down on the food bill is what they t- tend to do. Yeah. And if people are going to food banks, now that's telling us that's failure, right? Because food banks really should only be for people who can't manage income or when someone very quickly has lost their money and they need, need a step up. But when people, ordinary people on welfare or, or working people are going to food banks, that's a, that's a huge concern. I would say do, in this area, yeah. Do we have any figures in terms of that on, on food banks and their use or in Ireland? There's, there's, some, there's some work being done uh, by the individual organisations themselves, but it would be useful. I mean, I, the, the government has a working group at the moment on food poverty. They've just published a, a survey of what they have available. Um, we need a national monitor. You know, we need a figure. We need someone doing a piece of work measuring this as a problem because food does cost more in Ireland than it does in other countries. And that's despite the fact that, you know, <laughs> you know, we, we, we have one of the best farming sectors, yeah. you know, in, in, in yeah. Europe. Right? That, 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 that shouldn't be the case. Uh, but what I'd love to see is government actually saying, look, we're going to measure it. And number two, looking at all the different things that could make a difference. So, you know, they say local supermarkets, good quality supermarkets where you don't have to travel makes a huge difference. Uh, having a, a, a meals program, hot meals program linked to schools, early year sites, youth services, all of that is really useful. Like I would hear from both the youth services and the earlier services telling me er, on the earlier side, they say, I know that this is probably the only time the child gets to eat or gets something very light potentially at home. And on the youth services, they would tell me kids are arriving starving and we end up spending our own money feeding them. So, you know, we need to find ways along the way to help families and help parents. And this is what they've done in other countries. I mean, it's one of the areas in the poverty area where there has actually been some positive development, I have to say. Yeah. Because I do think the decision makers, people in government, the politicians get this. Uh, so you, you, you'll have seen a recent announcement from uh, the, the government that they're going to extend hot school meals to desk schools at primary level. That's really welcome. 
the only issue there is is the half of all children living in poverty aren't in debt. Yeah. And so your 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 particularly your children in rural Ireland uh, are the ones that are, are likely to experience that. And you want to make sure it's as universal as possible because look, every child benefits when it is. But the children on the lowest incomes, they benefit the most. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the the introduction of school meals across the board for every child in the country is is a, just a a no brainer. I think in terms of what what we should do. Um, I'm going to come to Zoe now. Zoe, just in terms of the your own work and um, being a community, you know, campaigner around uh, Bridgefoot Street. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit around, um, you know, the the, the issues in the area, um, and what you've been involved in. Um. Yes. Yeah, so. Bridgefoot Street Park is on Bridgefoot Street in the Liberties. That's Dublin 8. And um, yeah, so I um, <clears throat> I was living in Oliver Bond. I moved into Oliver Bond in 2009. It's a flat complex. Yeah. And um, I suppose I'd been working in, in the city and, you know, due obviously to the cost of housing, cost of childcare, um, I decided, like, my wage was low enough to qualify for council housing. And I had to uh, lobby quite hard, but I got a flat in Oliver Bond. And it was much better than where I'd been living in a Georgian building. Um, but I wasn't from Oliver Bond. And then um, a few years later, I think I was on my maternity leave for my third child. And um, my kids were playing downstairs in the tiny little playground. And my son was seven. This was 2016. And he picked up four syringes. And one of them was a used syringe, which had, you know, heroin in it. Yeah. Now, up until then, I'd been very much, let's say, a blow-in, kind of transient, you know, they'd see me in my little suit going off to work, coming back. You know, I was delighted with my, you know, quite cheap apartment in the city centre. But then this was like the rose-tinted glasses came off and I was like, what is going on here? Um, I was really, really shocked and frightened. And the thing that really struck me was, like I was freaking out a bit, like my son had picked up these syringes, but everybody else was behaving like it was completely normal. Yeah. Just walking by, there was just no reaction. So I just, and I just kind of said to myself, like, no, this is not good enough. Yeah. This is not good enough for my kids. This is not good enough for any kids here. And I just had that sudden, let's say, awakening or awareness or whatever, you know, from this horrible um, thing that had happened and just the lack of reaction. And then I just saw a poster up by one of the local councillors had a poster up nearby. This was like a couple of days later. And it just said campaign for park at Bridgefoot Street. And I thought, oh, yeah, you know, because I was feeling quite kind of frustrated. And mm. just after this had happened, and what can I do? And, you know, let's say powerless. So I went along to this meeting and it was about 15, just just totally local people like the local shopkeeper, I can remember somebody had come in like um, bed socks from pennies. I can remember just staring at this woman's bed socks, the puffy <laughs> bed socks from pennies and just thinking to myself, how are we going to get this park? Like it was really like a motley crew. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can just remember this moment where I just got my hand. I just slapped my hand on my thigh and I just said, right, my kids picked up syringes. We are going to get that park. And it was just like a declaration of intent. Very and that good, was just it. Good. I just that was just it. I had just made up my mind like this yeah. is not good enough for my kids and it's not good enough for any of the kids in the area. So I suppose, you know, making that decision and then just we just had so many meetings and then we worked with the councillor. I'd say anybody who's working in children's rights, it's important to have allies, mm. you know, like like Tanya's organization, you know, 
like yourself who used to work in Dolphin House, you know, who can guide you through the planning process. And there were lots of different stages over the years, but it was finally opened this year. So that was about seven years I was in the campaign. And before before I joined the campaign in 2016, it had been going for um, seven years as well. So it's about 14 years, the whole campaign. And pe- oh, people, it's a long time, a long time. Oh, but it was you absolutely got there. grueling, absolutely grueling. Yeah. Congratulations. It's a, it's a brilliant achievement and, and a resource. Yeah. And um, I, I had my own experience with my, I think it was an 18 month old or two year old picked up a needle in Fairview Park uh, and put it in his mouth and <gasps> didn't had no idea. Literally was staring, wondering. He was just looking at the ground and suddenly he had something in his mouth. And I went down to him and I was just, oh, should we have to bring him to hospital and test and all that stuff. And it's just it's traumatic. It's absolutely traumatic. And as you say, yeah. again, that being normalized, you know, that that's not right. You know, children should have safe, clean play areas. And yeah, 100%. Um, yeah. You know, as a human right. And it is a human right as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like it really opened my eyes. Like it's a, it's a kind of the flat complexes are like a kind of subculture in Dublin. Mm. It's like a kind of gated community. Now, I lived in Oliver Bond for 10 years um, in total. And then I've, I'm actually in a council house now. I got a transfer to a house. I'm in a three bed house now. But it's near flats as well. Um, I'm here two years. It's near flats in Inchicore and I found out actually what happened in March I, I don't know if I've mentioned this to Tanya before but I had um in March uh five 12 year olds came to my house at 10 p.m uh wearing balaclavas carrying weapons and this was like another moment for me it was it was like a repeat of the needles moment in 2016 in Oliver Bond it was just like a wake-up call it was like what is going on in this community and then I did a bit of um, background reading about it. And then I found out that there's an SDRA nearby. And what that means is it's a strategic development and regeneration area. So there used to be some flats in Inchicore here called St. Michael's Estate. So it's it's really like there's this kind of thing going on in the council at the moment where there's been problems in flat complexes. Like I think a lot of people, you know, accept that's true. There has been problems, but instead of looking, oh, maybe it's because there weren't enough sports facilities or maybe because, yeah. you know, what Tanya's talking, what um, Marion's talking about in talent, like the educational, like you can't just like, you can't just build some housing and not have any, any infrastructure around yeah. it. Like it, that's just like building housing, but then you're not actually building a community, a sustainable community. So I think children really fall through the cracks here when, like, it's really important. We've got development plans coming. We've got one in Dublin now. And I think there's about 17 or 18 of these SDRAs. And you're just very worried that it's just going to be, oh, we'll just build a load of housing there because people are homeless. They need housing. But actually, housing alone doesn't work. You have to have, like, a full-size sports pitch. You have to have basic play playgrounds. You know, exactly what yeah. Tanya's saying as well about the muscle tone. You need you need to have play space, you need to have swings, all these kind of things. So, you know, I'd really I'd really be concerned about children's rights falling through the cracks and um, yeah, with the SDRAs. Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and it, because there is going to be there's ongoing development going on um, and even, you know, the build to rent investor fund developments as well. There's major issues about the lack of, you know, even consideration that there would be children or families living in them. Um, and yeah. what is provided. But then across the board, you know, the state is going to be building, the Land Development Agency is going to be building homes, you know, the councils, yeah. as you say, um, and, you know, some of the big mistakes. And it was part of this, you know, it, it was in a way used to attack social housing, was that all oh, social housing failed, but social housing didn't fail. 
if social housing was failed to be maintained and designed and supported. And, mm. you know, your examples are, you know, absolutely clear around that. And yeah, I think with social housing, I think there's a misunderstanding of, let's say, laziness and all this kind of stuff, whatever. I mean, it's it's a, it's discrimination. What my experience is, you know, in places like Olive Bond, there's a lot of people who do caring work, unpaid caring work. They might be caring yeah. for an older relative. They might be caring for children. There's There, there could be health issues. So, you know, we're, we're always going to need social housing. So it just needs to be well designed. And I would really be in favor of part five. I think that's very successful. Um, the like the peppering people out, not kind of congregating everybody, you know, behind gates. You know, if, even these gated communities in Tallow would be a bit of a red flag. Because as soon as you're gating people off, it's like you're you're kind of you're stopping communities forming. Like what we need is we need housing, but we need the sports facilities as well, like the the big pitches, like for hurling, for rugby, for football, you know, for whatever sports need people want to play, you know, so the community and the residents can interact with each other and you know and build community. Yeah. And even important. things things like swimming pools is something that yeah. I've raised, you know, recently and it's you know, often kind of people poo-poo it and, you know, some people who have money can access private, you know, pools and, but there's a huge, you know, we have a major lack of public pools in this country and swimming pools are essential, you know, for children. We live on a small island as well, um, you know, with, with amazing resources and sea and swimming pools can be amazing resources and we should have public ones. Um, you know, yeah. in Austria, in the very successful social housing, they have swimming pools within the social housing, yeah. you know, apartment blocks. I lobbied, I put, just within the development plan, I, I organized a lot of my work was because of like maybe people haven't had educational opportunities. Um, and I was lucky enough to have educational opportunities. So a lot of the work I did in Oliver Bond in the campaign for the park was kind of drafting up submissions. And then we'd, we'd organize like maybe one person from each block would get the residents that supported, let's say, the park or whatever stage we were at to sign them and then I would kind of organize bringing them into Dublin City Council so that was it was really teamwork like there were there were so many people involved I certainly wouldn't take all the credit at all I was I was one of the campaigners but there were so many different skills I mean and as I say it was it was like you could even write a book about it it was it was such a diverse group of just really ordinary people yeah, yeah. just trying their best you know and, and it shows just, what people can achieve as well you know what is yeah. when people you know, do get involved in building that community. Marion or Tanya, do you want to come in there? I was going to say it's interesting that you um, mentioned swimming pools because when I first started working in Taller in 2007, um, very soon after that, the local authority opened the Taller Leisure Centre, which is a really nice facility, big swimming pool, yeah. lots of sports, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, residents were angry that it was being put in their back garden because they couldn't afford to use it yeah so i think it's about six euros per person for a swim yeah um i'm sure it's a bit cheaper for children but you know if you've got two or three kids you're talking maybe 15 euros for a swim a lot of people just don't have that money and yeah. i remember a woman saying to me it's like putting brown thomas next to the corner shop I know yeah. I'll never be able to go in there. Yeah, it it like when you do look, at the, you know, there's one, there's an amazing one in Markovich as well. But again, it's it's expensive, you know, to use. These are not cheap, and as you say, you know, again, it's it's these resources that Ireland is 
is a country that, you know, we look at poverty and we look at deprivation and the cost of living of all these access, these things, they all cost. And in particular for children, you know, to give them access to those things that they should have. Um, in Ireland, we're really bad for that. And th- those additional costs, you know, make exclusion and then, you know, people are excluded and feel excluded um, and that impacts on children. Tanya, I'm just going to conscious of our time. Um, we will definitely be coming back again as we will continue to cover uh, this topic and the work that you're doing on it. Um, in terms of the budget, the budget is coming up in September and proposals around this. I know one of the things you're proposing um, which I think is really important, and it's something that you know many organisations working in this area proposed is you know dedicated focus on um, you know child poverty. Be that you know a specific um, office I think you're proposing at the moment um, or section. You know we do have a minister for children, but you know there's there's questions that we need a child poverty agency or something that is you know completely yeah. focused on this. Um, maybe you could set out just some of the the solutions you think are needed. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the 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 big driver what we need is like we did have a combat poverty agency in the past, and it was really important, I suppose, for generating evidence of what the issues were and and generating ideas around solutions. But one of the things we've looked at, you know, in other countries, how have they got this right? And there's plenty of examples in other countries where they've done something very significant and they've had a, and it's had a, a, a significant effect on their child poverty rates. So even if you take the UK, for example, and Tony Blair, and people always say I'm brave when I say Tony Blair, and I you am are, brave. I agree with them. I, I am. <laughs> I, I, I am brave. But there's one thing he did do um, uh, was when he came into government, uh, he said, "I'm going to lift." Uh, over a million children out of poverty. But one of the things he did was he set up a child poverty unit in Mm. Whitehall. And other countries have done similar things. New Zealand and Scotland are prime examples of that. And that's where you have a team of officials who have this as their day job, day in, day out. They're analysing their national programmes. They're making sure they're actually lifting children and families out of poverty and they're launching initiatives, uh, launching food poverty programs, launching education programs, launching programs, supporting green spaces, etc. That's what they're doing to have a big effect on the numbers. And we don't have a unit like that in Ireland at the moment. We have a department of children, but what you have is a group of officials that have nine or eight different things on their day job. They don't have child poverty as their day job. And yeah. we can see that, that that that's one of the primary kind of gaps. We'd love to see a national unit. The talent exists as well. That's the other thing. There's plenty of experts in child poverty throughout the different government departments. So you'd love to bring them together. Uh, to, and we think that would really, really change the dial because the other issue is some government departments are more open to this than others. Um, and they don't see it as their day job as well. So you need someone, you know, in this unit putting pressure on Department of Housing, no Department of Housing, you need to do X, Y and Z, no Department of Health, you need to do X, Y and Z as well. I think that could make um, an enormous difference as well. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do with this work as well is it is to try and not just cover the food issue, the education, the health, the housing, but also to try and bring it back to how children are feeling and thinking about themselves and thinking about the other range of their rights, the right to play right to recreation because we know all of that you know it changes their horizons about what's possible and makes them feel good when they have places to go and hang out with their with their friends and 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 that's why we're hoping for this unit could also look at having a national approach set down national guidelines for what councils should be doing uh putting funding in this area as well so you know the council's told you need to develop this 
type of area x x y area for uh, play and recreation schools you need to create uh, gardens for children to hang out in your school as well um that's the kind of thing we need to see happen and we need to see a lot of money go in that direction as well because there's a paltry budget actually going for playgrounds actually coming through the department of children and the issue there is is that children when they are consulted um, actually say, particularly uh, young children, and this is just the general consultations, are saying, we want you to prioritise play and recreation. Yeah. Um, and then when they talk to teenagers, they say, we want places to hang out that are safe, that are cool, where mm. we can hang out and d- do things independently. So that's the other thing that we're hoping. There's a, there's a broader take on this as we move forward. Yeah, great, great. Well, listen, thank you so much for all the work you do, Tanya, Zoe and Marion as well. And best of luck. Uh, for your work as it goes forward. And as I said, we'll, we'll continue to highlight this on Reboot. Uh, thank you so much for joining me all here today on Reboot Republic. And um, just a reminder to our listeners, we are a completely independent uh, podcast media produced by Tortoise Shack Media, which is, of course, Tony Groves doing all the work. And um, if you can, please support us. Go over to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. Uh, the podcast you know we know that there are there are thousands of people listening and we really appreciate those who do support us and who do go and contribute what they can each month Um, and we know these are hard times but if you can as i said please consider becoming a patron you get the podcast first into your um email and yeah you you support us to keep going producing these podcasts so if you can please do consider that and if you can also please share it around on social media let people know that you're listening and it's great spreads the word and thank you so much and we'll talk to you all very soon